Welcome to another episode of Acts of the Blood God, an independent RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Kat. Happy Friday the 13th. Woo! I honestly had no idea it was Friday the 13th until halfway through the day and I saw it on Twitter. I have no concept of time anymore. Happy Trump Reascension Day. No! <laughs> Thunder lightning. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. dun, dun. Well, Nadia, today is an auspicious day. This is the beginning of the PC RPG Quest, the sequel to the console RPG Quest. We just finished recording it with our friend David Craddock. We're talking about the very earliest days of the RPG genre, starting in the 1970s. So, of course, we ended up somehow talking about Dragon Quest. I wonder how that (laughs) happened. Well, I mean, we're talking about the roots of it all, like where it really, really started. And of course, when you talk about where things start, you inevitably talk about how they evolved over time. And the jump to uh, consoles, like for RPGs, was a very, very big step. And But couldn't have started without uh, D&D. And when I say D&D, I mean small D&D. That was, that was the name <laughs> of a game. But D&D is, is to blame, too. So everybody... <laughs> Everybody participated. Good job. Everything was D&D. Everything Even really was. That or Tolkien. We'll get to all of that soon, including the news and what we've been playing. But first, if you enjoy the podcast, do us a favor. Leave a review on the podcatcher of your choice. And of course, subscribe to us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Pod. We have a lot of great stuff including Charlene Dropouts, our Final Fantasy XIV dedicated podcast, episode two of which is live. Nadia, what was it about? Uh, I have to apologize. I said originally in our last episode that it was going to be about Endwalker predictions, but no, we shifted a little bit to a more relevant topic for the time, which was about the mass exodus into Final Fantasy XIV from WoW. And not just WoW, but just a general influx of, of players into the game and how that might affect the community if it does at all. So Victor, Mike, and I had a really nice discussion about that. And um, well, I mean, so far, so good, knock on wood. Like, everybody still seems to be getting along. You're going to find jerks. You can't really avoid that. I did see a fight the other day about like whether it's guild or free company, because free company is what Final Fantasy XIV calls its guild. So it, it kind of event it ended jokingly it was someone telling a cat boy to go to hell and so <laughs> the, the wow people are really trying their best to get acclimated and i appreciate that and of course we are in the middle of our patreon playthrough of disco elysium which we are going to be doing an episode about that at the end of the month and you can listen to all of our pantheon episodes for 10 bucks a month and the last one being about Fantasy Star, in which we inter- invited our friend Shane Benthausen onto the show to do that episode. It was a lot of fun. A great look back on a classic RPG. If anything, Nadia, I find that this has been the year that I've been learning a lot about the earliest days of RPGs, I feel. Yeah, there is still a lot for us to learn. Myself, like even the Japanese side of the industry, I'm always learning something new. Uh, we just recorded, like we said, the computer RPG segment, the first part. And that was a very educational thing for me because, I mean, even though I'm technically considered an older gamer, I didn't start till mid 80s. And we're talking about the 70s. And that's really the root of everything. And so it's a really valuable, interesting mind to plumb to see what you can find out. 
And of course, you can follow me on Twitter at the underscore catbot, and Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. Okay, let's get started with the episode. Nadia, tell me, what is your sacrifice on the altar of the blood god? What RPG do you bring to our Dark Lord this week? I have to, I have, um, I think the most interesting one was Tales of a Rise. I did a preview of that for Rock, Paper, Shotgun, so... I played a lot of that for a while and wrote my impressions and put them on rock, paper, shotgun. So you can find them there. And I generally really like the game. The writing isn't nearly as good as Vesperia, though, because Tales of Vesperia was actually just really funny and really cute from, from moment one. Whereas Tales of Arise is more, uh, here's the amnesiac hero. Here's the chick who's they're going to fall for each other by the end. But right now they're being all Sundere and it's, it's all right. It's fine. But um, I just remember how... I was captivated by Tales of Asperia because it was like, holy shit, that dog is smoking a pipe. You don't really get that impression <laughs> at all in Arise. But of course, it's just a preview. I, I can't tell you for sure what the end product will be. I'm certainly looking forward to the end product when it comes out. So it, it is. It, I did have very favorable impressions overall. It looks very nice. The upgrade to the gra- for the graphics is really, really good. Second thing I played um, kind of was last night. In fact, we the Blood God, not really a guild, we don't have a guild, but like kind of a bunch of us from the Blood God discourse, Discord got together in Final Fantasy fourteen and went treasure hunting. And so the way that works is you find you buy treasure maps from the market and you follow them with a bunch of your friends and you find the treasure and a monster attacks and oh no and then you beat them and you claim the treasure. And if you're lucky, you get pulled into a like a treasure dungeon. And that does like fun things like it's a game of chance as well as a game of skill. You beat these enemies, you pick the right door, if you pick the wrong door, you get kicked out of the, the dungeon. We got really far in one instance, but we actually, it was like kind of a roulette and every roulette brings up a monster with the prizes being better and better. But then at one point we summoned Atomos, which meant your game is over because he just sucks you up and uh, we don't really survive Atomos. That's just the way it is in the Final Fantasy universe. Frickin' Atomos. Yep, totally. Ruining days since Final Fantasy V. <laughs> Very frightening little summon, that guy. I also played Tales of Arise. I didn't play the newest version of it. Uh, I enjoyed the battle system quite a bit. I agree that the writing uh, leaves something to be desired, though admittedly I was playing very early game version of the game, so I wasn't able to get a quite a very good feel, I should say, for the individual party members. They all seemed very Genshin Impact-y, you know, paper-thin archetypes of various anime characters, but that's fine because it's really pretty... It's really pretty. It's fun to play. I actually played what I think was the full build or full-ish, but it started from the very beginning, what I'm assuming is the very beginning with uh, the main character. I can't remember his name. They call his, he's Since he's an amnesiac, everyone just calls him Iron Mask because he wears an iron mask over his face. Go figure. Uh, yeah, so it's it, there's certainly not like unpleasant to spend time with. I'm looking forward to just hanging out with him a little more. Maybe I'll very likely warm up to them. Who knows? One of the first JRPGs for the new generation of consoles, even beating out Final Fantasy 16. Look at Tales Go. <laughs> it's going all right. It's just uh, chugging along. I hope it's good. Honestly, yeah. I hope I think I hope it finds a strong audience because that series has always been kind of a second tier series, more of a cult favorite, if anything else. I mean, certainly it has its fans out there, yeah. but it's never been what you would call a big jrpg no no it could be i guess a term i could use is uplifted the way persona was uplifted who knows maybe this will be the game to do it but tales fans have always been 
Tails fans, and there's there's still a very uh, there's still a very healthy, active fan base out there. But as you said, yeah, it's not like an A tier. Holy crap! And here comes new Tales of Fantasia. Alert the media. It's a little more low key, and maybe it's maybe it's better that way. I think the gap between releases has done Tales good because yes. there was a period where it was coming out practically every year, and so it was beginning to seem like oh, another Tales game. Great. Which one is this? Yeah, that was part of the problem I had with the series. I didn't know which one was which. I didn't know where to start. I didn't know why there was a Tales of Vesperia and a Tale of Besteria. That's really, really weird to me. Are they connected? I don't think they are, but why would you name your game like that? So there was definitely a point where there was just a big clump <laughs> of Tales games. And things have smoothed out and settled out a bit. Um, there was enough space between uh, the last game and the remake of Vesperia that I said, okay, you know what? I'm finally going to give this series a try. Oh, hey, I like it. This is actually really cool. And I'm looking forward to a rise now. Somebody did a flow chart telling you all the different Tales games that you should be playing. And what it boiled down to was either play Vesperia or Zillia, maybe uh, Tales of the Abyss. And you're good. Yeah. Or Symphonia. People love Symphonia. Some people love Symphonia. Who did we have on recently that didn't like it? I think it was Reb. It might have been me. (laughs) (laughs) Me, I'm sorry. It was you. We were talking about that and the terrible bugs in your apartment. So, yeah. (laughs) Yes, the bug apartment. (laughs) That's going to stay with me for the rest of my life, Kat. Thank you so much for that. They're in the walls. Not as bad as my friend who said she woke up on Easter and found her Easter basket swarming with centipedes. (laughs) Dear God. (laughs) And she said that was the worst Easter ever. And that put me off religion forever. That could have been it. Now that I think about it, it would put me off anything. Put me off Easter for good. Go resurrect somewhere else, Jesus. I don't want your centipedes. Well, Nadia, I have been playing Final Fantasy III Pixel Remaster, but I don't think oh. I'm going to keep playing it. I think I am going to stop. How far did you get? I got past Salamander, but I can't, I'm kind of getting tired of the gimmickiness of the game. It's not like it's extremely hard so like i hit salamander and i was having a tough time with him because he uses flame to hit the entire party right and so i was dying pretty fast so i went back and i bought some ice armor and did some grinding and the nice thing about the pixel remaster is that it has the fast forward function so you can go really fast through the battles the music is still very pleasant it gets a little monotonous but a lot of that is because like from a visual standpoint but a lot of that is because the original NES game was pretty monotonous because there just wasn't a lot of memory for a lot of different right. backgrounds and that yeah. kind of thing. So I'm willing to forgive it that. But it's so gimmicky in the way that it's actually like, if I have to turn my party into freaking toads one more freaking time <laughs> to go into a freaking dungeon, I swear to God, it's just busy work, you know? So I'm yeah. a little sick of it. It actually strikes me as a an, more of an important game than a good game. And what I mean mm. by that is that this is the creation of the job system. This is where it really took off. So, but it's of such course, a simple version of the job exactly. system. Exactly. So it's great in a historical sense and by a historical standpoint. But then you have Final Fantasy V, which more or less perfects on that. So I'm not saying don't bother with three, but it's kind of like me in Final Fantasy II, where two is really the start of... Uh, the story-based stuff for Final Fantasy, and it's really the root of Final Fantasy IV, which is great, but I don't want to play two. i I just going to go straight to four. That's why I'm waiting for next month. It feels like an enhanced version of the original Final Fantasy. There you, you go. You get the impression that the reason they want you to come up with different party combinations when you're fighting, going through dungeons, like, okay, this is the all 
wizard dungeon. Mm-hmm. This is the all fighter dungeon, right? It's because they were infatuated with the idea that you could change your job at any time, as opposed to just setting your job at the very beginning of the game. Yeah. It sounds to me almost like a, a hyper steroid version of the job change class in, in Dragon Quest Three, which came bef- a little bit before, or quite a bit before uh, Dragon uh, Final Fantasy Three. I think. I don't know if one was inspired by the other, but I just know that in Dragon Quest Three, you could change your your job on the fly, and that was a very big deal. So I could see Square saying, "Oh yeah, well let me sh- let us show you how job changes are done," and just <laughs> making it so that you had to like constantly change your job. But it's not like five, where five is more about you make your party and you decide how to get through this stuff. But either way, like, is up to you. It's not we're not chaining you to anything here. So I might, I kind of want to get through Final Fantasy three just to say that I did it. I'm just not yeah. really having a good time with it. Don't waste your time. How much free time do you have, Cat? To waste? I on don't. Games that, I don't that... have like any time. But exactly. I was kind of like into it for a bit, but it's just starting to get. It's starting to grind my gears. Kind of no, getting sick of it. That's totally like reasonable to to come across. Like it was me in the original Final Fantasy, the Pixel Remaster. Hey, this looks great. This sounds great. Hey, I still don't really like this game, so I'm not going to play it. It there's still older RPGs, and some people love them. I know that, but for some people, it's just you know what? I support tedium to a point, but not not all about the tedium. It feels like a beta version for the Super Nintendo ones that were much better. And you can see some of the elements of Final Fantasy IV in it, including a heroic sacrifice that pops up at one point. Of course, got to have it. But then it, all it makes me want to do is play freaking Final Fantasy IV, the much better go. version of Final Fantasy II, and then Final Fantasy V, the much better version of Final <laughs> Fantasy III. Yeah, so I'm really looking forward to at least to knowing that Square Enix, the pixel remasters for the most part are just are really, really good remakes of the games. And so they will probably do right by four, five, and six coming out next month. Oh, and I'm not a huge hater of the fonts, but also please fix the fonts, Square. Please I mean, give seriously. Give us an option. They look yeah. like bad mobile games with the fonts. They look like a RPG maker kind of joint rather than a professional joint. Yeah, it, I don't understand. It lowers the quality of the entire thing. Just fix the fonts. That's all I have to say about that. I'm also playing Disco Elysium or Pantheon of the Blood God. I am making progress. Um, my character is a bit of a shitlord, unfortunately. <laughs> Oops. Yeah. It, was that on purpose, or did it just kind of now? He's becoming happen? really sexist, and it's really bothering me. Oh, no. You better go in there and hit him. I'm having to, like, explicitly move away from all sexist thoughts, all sexist dialogue options. There have been two occasions where being mocked by a child has resulted in him ending up under a bridge, sobbing and rocking (laughs) back and forth, drinking alcohol. Because a child mocked him? That's great. Yeah. What an idiot. I'm sorry. Kuno Kuno was kind of a jerk. I'm not going to lie. He totally broke his psyche. Uh, There are like these uber racist to the point of being Nazi characters that are trying to turn him into like a... Well, I don't even know. Like, there are these fictional cultures. So fictional culture nationalist. Yeah, okay. The the best kind of nationalist, I suppose. And it was like, should I put this thought in my thought count? And I'm like, well, it would help me get through. But also, no. <laughs> <laughs> I told the lorry driver who's super racist and was talking to me about the master race. I was like, F off, okay? Just go away. I am and, the, what are you, like a chauffeur for the master race? Get out of town. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. But- I don't know, like, it's really well written, but it's really grim. It is, like, one of the most depressing games ever. And I just, 
I can't stand being in the skin of the slob. (laughs) The one who cries under bridges when children make fun of them. I desperately want them to make them a better person, but they're pushing back against me and they just want to be horrible. They just want to fall apart. And I'm just like, uh, I just, they are the very opposite of how I see myself. I feel gross every time I load up this game. I actually have to give kudos to a game that does that though, because Mm -hmm. we all think, we all have our own version of who we are in our heads. And of course we probably think we're big damn heroes a lot of the time, but then a game kind of turns around and makes you look at yourself through like kind of a grimy mirror and it's like oh i actually i'm not actually wearing any pants <laughs> yeah you can just walk outside wearing nothing and, you know people <laughs> will kind of go well whatever he's naked i guess <laughs> it's cold up whatever you want yeah it's it's an interesting rpg it's very well written and those dialogue trees they just keep going and if you try to click on every dialogue option like you might want to in a typical rpg you can get yourself into trouble really fast. You could actually end up saying someone, hey, you, you look like a slug or something like that. You know, well, you could be in a situation where you're accidentally starting up a, a side quest where you're stalking a woman. Oh, no. Yeah. I just wanted to see the dialogue options. I, I just I wanted could... to see what happened. Don't click on that dialogue option. God damn it. <laughs> I thought you could cheat at this, like choose your own adventure. No, no, you can't. So, uh, so yeah, please look forward to our Disco Elysium Uh, pantheon episode at the end of the month okay let's talk about the news nadia there was an indie world direct lots of new nintendo switch indies very exciting one of the big ones we're very excited about this one eastward is coming really soon september even which means that it's just one more game that we got to throw on the pile but it is one that we are very excited to play i wonder if it can be this year's hades nadia yeah, that is one that, you know, all these games we have to throw in the pile. That is one I want to give priority to because it still looks fantastic. Like, it's just one of the best looking sprite games I've ever seen. Gorgeous. But I don't know a lot about how it plays. I don't think anybody knows that. It at might this be point. a little simple, ultimately. We'll right, see. Right, right. But that wouldn't really be bad with me. I am totally down for a simple RPG that just looks gorgeous. Uh, we will see. I am definitely looking forward to it. And I'm glad we only have to wait till next month. That's pretty great. Loop Hero is also coming to the Nintendo Switch. You may recall me talking about that in earlier episodes. Loop Hero is the game where your character is literally going around in a loop. And then as you go, you get these resources. You put down little tiles that continually give you more resources. And you have to decide every time you complete a loop, can I keep going or do I not keep going? And if you can keep going for long enough, eventually you'll start unlocking bosses and everything it's a very clever take on the dungeon crawler so i look forward to people playing it on console yeah i am looking forward to that very very much that was one of the games i think that really made twitter blow up because people are really excited about loop hero coming to switch it's gorgeous and it's fun to come up with builds on the fly um i if i recall correctly speed is a big one that is a good one to have being able to hit all enemies that is something that you want to go for as well like there was a certain point where i was just looking for certain abilities uh to be able to dispatch enemies as fast as humanly possible evasion is a big one because you don't want to get hit i always find Mm -hmm. that in rpgs when you're building i always find that you can't go wrong dumping a lot into speed unless you're making a hulking warrior or something a min max yeah, exactly. That and luck. I always put my luck in luck, and usually I get screwed because luck is always the broken stat. 
You could be uh you can also do a vampiric attack that will heal your character every time they hit. So nice. being able to recover HP is very useful in the game that is Loop Heroes. So yeah, check it out when it comes out on Nintendo Switch. And Boyfriend Dungeon also coming to the Nintendo Switch. It's apparently been very successful out of the gate. That is a game where your swords are literally also hot boys, I guess. <laughs> It seems like it was written for me, but I would prefer more like, hey, they're like hot wolfmen or something. But uh, you know, swords, like, I don't find swords sexy in the least, but I hear that the game is really fantastic. I have a friend who's just mad about it, so I might give it a try. It was got a kind of a middling review on IGN. Uh, our reviewer, I think it was Miranda, said that she wanted to like it a lot more than she ultimately mm. did, which is... Too bad. I don't really think it's my kind of jams, so I think I have no reason, you know. <laughs> so. it's, it's like games like that can be really hit or miss with me. And yeah. it's actually funny because I can say now the first game I localized was an Otome, a, a, a graphic novel about choosing a boyfriend. So, mm. <laughs> And I, I don't get me wrong, I really enjoyed localizing that. But when it comes to playing games like that, um, the, the writing has to be really, really super clever. And I just dug a hole for myself, I'm sure. I bounced really quickly off Dream Daddy. I just didn't find it engaging, but I know people who absolutely are mad about it, so I'm sure this is the same situation. Nadia, the Sa- Shadowbringer soundtrack is on Spotify from Wonders. Oh my God, how good is the Shadowbringer soundtrack? Should I go listen to it? Oh, it is absolutely Oh my God. Oh, I haven't heard Oh my God since like 2006, so thank you for that. <laughs> it is by far one of the best uh, certainly probably the best in Final Fantasy XIV's history. And this was actually one that Nobuo Uematsu, like, unfortunately, he was sick. He didn't really help with it. Usually he helps a little bit. He always helps, at least with the title theme. But no, uh, this was all uh, Soken doing this uh, particular soundtrack. And it's just fantastic. The only thing I'll say about the Spotify release, though, is I think it's missing the Patches music, which has some of the absolute best songs ever composed for Final Fantasy, including... To the Edge, which is a, now a, a kind of a famous song because it's a, it's a it's a song that backs a very emotional climax, a very emotional fight. And we learn later on that Sokin wrote the song while he was like in the hospital, like being treated for cancer and he was all alone and it was just like really grim time for him. So that just really adds spice to the song. But unfortunately, it's not there yet. Um, but the overwhelming majority like of, of 5.0 is there. So uh, yeah, there's some fantastic some fantastic songs there. And finally, Pokemon Presents next week. We're going to learn more about Pokemon Shiny Pearl and Brilliant Diamond. Is that what <laughs> it's called? We still don't know what this game is called. <laughs> it's a weird It's a weird name. I'm sorry. No, it absolutely is. Um, this was, I feel like I'm not part of the great Pokemon marketing machine. I, so please forgive me, the great gods, for criticizing you. But I don't think that was the best marketing move. And there's also Legend of Arceus, which yes. is going to be coming out in January. is maybe the more compelling adventure. But I am perfectly excited about the Pokemon Diamond and Pearl remaster. It's time to remember the underappreciated fourth generation games including my boy chimchar he's back (laughs) and you know what this means it means that i'm going to be able to get chimchar into sword and shield which means i'm going to be reunited with my pal infernate at last ah i'm glad that he's been with you this whole time but i and what's even greater is that i'm going to be able to immediately go and fix infernate's stats 
which right. have been super busted ever since <laughs> I raised it originally. I can go and bring it into the future. I'm hoping that the Diamond and Pearl remakes give uh, Infernape a much desired or a much deserved boost so that he can compete against his eternal rival, Blaziken. Screw you, Blaziken. Uh, <laughs> I actually, I, I chose Torchic back for the third generation and I regretted it because Torchic's so cute, but then Blaziken's like, what are you? You're just like four triangles and a couple of rectangles ta- uh, taped together. I can't really see what you are. Yeah, the actual design started to get more Digimon-ish by Extremely. third generation. Yes, definitely. And I, I was never a fan of Blaziken. I'd rather see Infernape uh, beat his ass, even though I did have a Blaziken myself. I named Kentucky Fried Chicken or something clever like that. There was some Pokemon Snap DLC recently as well. Yeah. And that is a game that's still on my docket and I need to play it. But no, I'm playing Final Fantasy three on <laughs> NES, apparently. <laughs> Pokemon Snap, uh, sorry, new Pokemon Snap was definitely one of my favorites this year. I really had a great time with it. So I want to get that DLC and go through it. And I don't know if they have Litten. My husband's favorite is Litten. And he's like, are there pictures of Litten? Do you have Litten in there? And I don't know if Litten's in this one. Well, I guess we'll find out. But in the meantime, it's time to continue on to the PC RPG quest. Don't go away. Okay, it is time to start our brand new segment, the PC RPG Quest, the great new sequel to the console RPG Quest. Yes, it's time to look at that other side of role-playing gaming, the PC side. We're going to be going through decade by decade, but we're not just going to do one episode per decade. We're going to do multiple episodes per decade, and we are going to start at the very beginning and joining us for this venture is our old friend david craddock welcome back welcome back i am so excited to talk about the rpgs on the abacus this is gonna be great (laughs) final fantasy's true origins only the (laughs) hardcore know that though Uh, i I played final fantasy on the nes please (laughs) abacus let me tell you about the abacus yeah Yeah, that's that's the joke i like the special sundial edition yes (laughs) Great. <laughs> That's the expansion. That one was good. That one was good. Well, David, the reason that I thought of you for this particular segment was because you literally wrote the book on the earliest days of RPGs. And tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. Uh, the book Dungeon Hacks gave me an opportunity to delve into these mainframe RPGs where today we talk about console exclusives, but these were these were exclusive to the select few who had access to uh, dumb or smart terminals that could connect to mainframes and play the likes of Rogue. But even that, which is considered a pretty early RPG, came after a lot of these. I believe we're going to talk about some RPGs from the Plato terminal. And uh, just as a teaser, I know recently we talked about games influenced by D&D. One of the RPGs is literally called D. N D. <laughs> so I think it wears its influences on its on its sleeve. Legally distinct. Do not yeah. sue. <laughs> I w- do you ever listen to hardcore history, David? Yes, I do. Did you hear the recent episode where he was talking about his wargaming roots? No, I missed that one. Oh, you should check it out. It's on his uh, Hardcore History Addendum show that he oh. uh, that Dan Carlin upgrades updates occasionally. 
if you're not familiar with Hardcore History, it's a podcast that releases a new episode like once every six months or so, but they're always really good. They're total bangers about history. A lot of dad history in there, especially <laughs> World War II. But That's totally he, dad history. He has an addendum podcast that also updates once every six months or so. So altogether, you occasionally get, you know, a couple podcasts a year, but they're really good. Anyway, so he interviewed somebody who was working on a new shooter for World War II that was very realistic. And he talked about his own gaming roots. One of the things he talked about was the early days of war gaming and playing Dungeons and Dragons first edition and how when he was reading the rule book, he had to go and get chain mail just to be able to reference how to fight in large groups and things like that. (laughs) That was the landscape of tabletop role playing back in the 1970s. <laughs> Which is really, uh, even those adventures are probably more realistic than what we had in early computer games because the technology was so so limited. But that's where the imagination came into play, and that's one of my favorite parts of this era. Imagination. Imagination. <laughs> it's a SpongeBob thing. Imagination. When you just kind of make a rainbow over your head. That's what it all took back in the day. I'm that's actually... Hard very um, inexperienced when it comes to to actual CRPG history. So I was doing a little bit of research for this episode. And can you, I'm sure you explained it at some point, but can you kind of explain like what the Plato is, for example? Because that's where a lot of these RPGs got their start. Yeah. So the Plato was one type of, of terminal. Back in the day, certain, only very select facilities had access to terminals and you didn't access the terminal directly. The terminal was a a giant, sometimes gymnasium, or at the very least, like refrigerator-sized machine mm-hmm. stored in a, in a basement somewhere, and uh, you dialed into it through dumb terminals that could only... Right. They couldn't... They had, like, the dumb terminal is like a laptop, but your laptop would have to be connected to a screen to use it sort of thing. Mm-hmm. They didn't have a brain. And um, the, these RPGs were born there, because a lot of the, the scientists, in a lot of cases, in games, university students who would get bored, they would learn how to program, and that invariably led them to writing their own games. And they kind of had to be pretty surreptitious about it, because a lot of mainframes did what's called time sharing, which is a little bit like multitasking, which I think a lot of people are familiar with today. But the time sharing resources, basically the mainframe would very quickly dole out time to each terminal connected to it, but only so many terminals could be connected and each process took different chunks of time. So games were considered the biggest waste of time. If you were, <laughs> if you were caught playing or even worse, creating a game so that other people could waste the, the terminal's time, that, that was even worse. Um, so gaming has always been a sin is what we're learning here. Today. Always, always <laughs> been a sin. And the, the cool thing I think about games written during this era is that there really was no, no template, no cheat sheet, um, unless you considered D&D. Uh, like a lot of early RPGs, the people who who made these early mainframe-based RPGs, they read Tolkien, they played D&D, and they just kind of wanted to really offload a lot of the more tedious work, like dice roll calculations and things of that nature, onto a computer so they could focus on the fun part, which is uh, crawling through dungeons and fighting monsters and getting loot. That's what uh, that Hardcore History episode was talking about, Dan, or David, sorry, where he was talking about how he was so excited to have a PC that would actually do the calculations for him because that was always the most tedious aspect 
of the actual role playing. He just wanted to play the fr- with the freaking characters. The only people who actually wanted to do the calculations were the rules lawyers and everything. So. Well, it's, it, it, it's really like playing a board game with your family, right? Like inevitably an argument's going to break down and someone's going to grab for the rule book and cite page 13, paragraph B, subclause A of Monopoly, and everyone's going to just get in a bad mood. But with the computer in charge, <laughs> no disputes break out because the computer knows the rules and you just play. You do yeah, not know. That's computer. exactly. Yeah, you can put the rules in exactly, and the computer is just going to interpret them as you will. As opposed to, he said that part of the playing the game was not just the tactics, it was having multi hour arguments about how a rule could be interpreted. <laughs> mm-hmm. exactly. My dad would just pretend to sneeze and flip the board, and that was the end of our game. <laughs> <laughs> My little sister wouldn't even pretend to sneeze. She was like, oh, David's winning. Table flip. Uh, and and <laughs> that was that. that. Yeah, that was that. I remember when I was in like daycare, like preschool, really? there was like a Warhammer fantasy board game or something. In your daycare? Yeah. What, what I, kind of I, daycare do re- <laughs> I don't know. I don't even it might have been a knockoff of Warhammer even, but it was very Warhammer like. <laughs> I just love I, that in a kindergarten. I wonder if it awakened anything in me. I, Probably. I think the rest of us are behind the curve. Nadia and I are in our daycare banging blocks together. Yeah. Cats like painting figures and conducting my, battles. My biggest, and... uh, the biggest thing in my kindergarten was fighting over like the Flintstone phone or something. Everyone who gets their work done first, so you can fight yes. over and go play with like the, the Mickey Mouse phone or whatever it was. And you're like Warhammer playing war games, <laughs> not just kindergarten, pre-K. Yeah, blood for the blood god. (laughs) (laughs) Yabba dabba do. I like slaughtering for you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, none of us are actually old enough to remember this heyday of gaming. And maybe thank God for that, because God, it must have been a very boring time to be alive. I feel like it probably must have been. But like, there's something kind of cool. Like, I feel like this is a a mockumentary or dramatization waiting to happen of like sneaking into the lab after hours and coding and like, you know, changing the file name of your games. So the administrators don't come looking for you and cracking down on your game. Like there is probably a little bit of um, kind of defying authority in it too. Yeah. A little bit of sleuthing. Well, yeah. I mean, this was the hacker ethos of the day, right? Like the other part of this is, and we'll talk about specific games, but no matter what the game was, the point was you didn't sell this. There was no commercialization aspect to it. You made it and you uploaded it to the terminal so that other people could play. Because even though a lot of these games weren't multiplayer, you would get together or even talk online because Plato hosted early an early chat service. I can't think of the name right now. And, and you would be able to, to share your adventures with people. So it was kind of the the same passion for tabletop gaming but asynchronously and it was it was fun new and you were part of a very exclusive club because this was long before there were personal computers much less affordable ones so it was a pretty it was probably a very boring time but it was also a very unique time in gaming Mm. history when so many games are disposable nowadays and there's so many games that you might have never even heard of them back in the day when a new rpg came out of the name frame Every, literally everybody played it. It's kind of like when the new console comes out, there's one exclusive, everybody plays it because you need something to play on this new platform. It's kind of neat. I can just picture the profs all losing their minds over this. Just oh, the, yeah. All their power being sucked up by these D&D nerds is great. But some of them, I have a really good story. I can't remember who told it to me. It's in Dungeon Hacks, but um, he kind of, this, this, this programmer slash hacker saved his own bacon 
because they found out that a couple of uh, prestigious sci-fi fantasy authors at the time were two of the people logging into their university's computer and stealing time to play. So the school was like, well, it's kind of cool that we have these prestigious guests, but also it's games. So uh, we're uh, so conflicted is, <laughs> is kind of a, you know, kind of neat stories like that. That doesn't yeah. happen now because everybody plays games now. It's not um, exclusive anymore and it shouldn't be, but there was a, there was a, there was a certain spirit, a certain ethos to it back then that was kind of course. magical. It's weird to think of how as recently as the early 2000s, if you were an adult who played video games, you were considered very weird. Weird. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think we've all probably interviewed developers, even some who, who maybe only started in the in the in the 2000s or 2010s, who whose parents would say that's a job. Like it's just kind of now becoming accepted. Like, oh yeah, video games. Tighten the graphics on level three. That's a thing. You know. I think even just writing about games, like I took a long time to convince my parents that's a real job. It's the thing that exists. It's something I get money for. True. It's how I feed myself. The night I met my father-in-law to be, he said, so what do you do? And Amy said, oh, he writes about games. And I was like, oh, I really wish I could have cushioned that blow because he he looked at me and he goes, that's a job. And I was like, I mean, the check's Uh, clear. So (laughs) the check's clear. So, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah, I met somebody's father-in-law, and I was like, yeah, I write about video games. And like, you must spend a lot of time around teenagers. I'm like, not really. Not really. No. They Definitely not. No, no. No, no. They, I, if I ever have to write an article about teabagging and, and the, the underworld of Xbox Live, then yes. But yeah. otherwise, otherwise, no. Or the inevitable uh, statement, you know, my kid would love your job. Oh. Like, I oh, bet they would. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, you know what, though? I have an actual um, interesting story is that my mother's ex-boss, her son apparently was like fascinated when he heard that I wrote about video games and he aspired to that. He didn't get there, but he became a competitive Street Fighter player. Well, I mean, oh, that's, that's even awesome. better. Maybe they actually yeah. made money. I know. Because I, I, when people say, when young people say, oh, can I be a games writer? It's like, you can, but you know, like honestly, you're better off putting the time in on Street Fighter and seeing if that. You takes... really, really are. Yeah, and even that—that's the sort of thing where, like, I—I I admit it's—I'm a bit ashamed of it, but just over the last couple of years, have I actually been able to reconcile the fact, like, oh yeah, streaming, playing games—that's a job. That's like an acceptable mm-hmm. job. It's probably just as hard, if not harder, to make it as it is a games writer. Oh, absolutely. Uh, as it is a games writer, but yeah, like I guess every generation struggles with the, the new norm, whatever of that course. means. Yeah. Is it a job? It's defining the culture as we yes. know it. The broader it mainstream culture. Kids are growing up idolizing streamers and things like that. Yeah. Not not celebrities so much as streamers. Like my nephew is adores like there's a streamer who's a major like extreme sports uh streamer and he loves that person. I can't remember his name. Some, some Goofy ass name. I don't know. I don't know why I'm so fascinated with the early, early, early days of gaming. Maybe it's because it's the same reason I'm fascinated with history. It's just this period that is out of time that I was never able to actually experience for myself. So I often wonder what it was actually like. I think it's for me, one of the reasons I started writing books like Dungeon Hacks and Stay Well and Listen was. Even in Diablo's case, like you think about the 90s and how big Blizzard was. Like in terms of 1990s, really for PC games, it was Blizzard and ID and then kind of a rotating third share. Um, but we were 
long before the time of collector's edition art books and DVD documentaries being packaged with special editions and things of that nature. And I always kind of, I still look askance at those because there's kind of a corporate feel to them. You know, you, you don't really know if you're getting the real story. And I love telling the stories of these games because maybe they're out there, but in bits and pieces and websites that have long since been, you know, just kind of dropped off the face of the earth. Um, I, I learned about some early mainframe RPGs. I was also kind of boning up for this episode. And um, there, there are other writers out there, such as the CRPG Addict, who's, if you're not familiar with him, his goal is to play every RPG in chronological order, just to kind of under, better understand its place in history and what it did and if it holds up. And he, he also kind of tries to play it in the mindset of, well, this is how things were back then. Um, and that to me is fascinating, especially because a lot of these mainframes, like there was no way to take screenshots. These games do not exist in any other function besides the writings of people who played them or talked to people who played right. them. Um, and it's completely imagination based, which is also appropriate in a way because we're also in an era of text only games like Zork and Colossal Cave Adventure, where there, there was no one graphical interface for these games everyone the three of us right now we might be picturing those games and we're picturing the same thing but different and it's a really fascinating thing to me i mean this was the primordial ooze of video games right this is when games were very much the the purview of hobbyists right where people like richard garriott who was in high school at the time decides to go and write a game like a calabeth which is the equivalent of you or me, Nadia, writing fan fiction when we were in high school, right? I mean, he was <laughs> yeah. basically doing D&D fan fiction only. It was interactive on a game yeah. console. And unlike me, I tried to make a video game in basic or whatever when I was like in high school. He was actually talented at it. <laughs> he was actually, yeah, I was using like just fumbling around with hyper cards, but he was actually uh, doing something. He's a, well, he's pretty much a genius, let's be honest here. Yeah, yeah. Hypercard, you could have made Mist. So close. Was I saw was Mist made in Hypercard? I have seen like versions of Mist made uh, in Hypercard. I don't, I don't think, think it was Mist originally was. made. Uh, but right. the, the same the brothers who made that like their earlier game, I think it was called like the Manhole or something. But they made that in Hypercard, and then they kind of moved great, on great, from there. Yeah, what a great program! I had a great time with that. For some reason, our I don't know if it's still the case, but Toronto School Board favors or favored Max. So I learned how to, I, everything I learned on the computer, I learned in the Macintosh Plus, first and foremost. I didn't actually get exposure to PCs until I hit high school. And then I was like, oh, what the hell is this? Because Windows 3.1 was ugly as hell in my eyes. But uh, it's interesting. The th- interesting about CRPGs is that I can't say I'm totally ignorant about them because, yes, I did experience some because... My parents happened to get a Commodore 64 from a friend, and so I went backwards for a time, and because uh, we didn't have a lot of money for to play for my Nintendo games, so I just kind of went back and I played like Temple of Apshai, for example, and um, the text version of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which was my first exposure to that um, that property. Yeah, I mean, really, you were doing what Richard Garriott and you know Rogue co-creator Michael Toy and all these other pioneers did. Um, there, there were no like platform wars back then, right? There was no like DOS versus Mac. It was just whatever you had. You just kind of yeah. used that. And I mean, I, a lot of these games were written in, um, I think Vi was the, the text editor in Unix. And 
Uh, even unbeknownst to the Rogue co-creators, they found out that Rogue became a part of the distro of Unix. Like it was installed on all these mainframes because whoever was curating programs was like, yeah, I've, I've flunked out three semesters of Rogue. I may as well do a little, you know, <laughs> give it an homage and, and include it in the distro that, that we pass around here. But like, that's just kind of how games spread. And, and you were you learned on what you were exposed to, which is part of the spirit of the day. Yeah, that was one of the most interesting elements of the book that you wrote, David, which was this notion that going viral back in the 1970s, <laughs> early 80s, entailed games being spread from school to school across different platforms. And that's how games like Rogue spread like wildfire and became popular and ultimately were able to be preserved. Yeah, I mean... It you know, today we have ports, but I know back then, um, a lot of the people like games like, like NetHack, uh, was born as hack, which was from a bunch of high school kids who played rogue and they obviously couldn't go out and buy it for their computer of choice. So they just said like, what was that game like? Let's try to recreate it. Mm. And it's funny how that's still happening. Um, there are some, some doom streamers I follow and just recently one of them, I can't remember the name of the mod, but the idea was he played through doom the way you remembered it. So like you start E1M1, the very first level, and it 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 took my minute it took a minute for my brain to wrap around it because the level was almost but not quite right. Like it was really, really carefully done. And I was thinking like, well, that's how a lot of these games came from. You know, you had to like, oh, I played this on a mainframe, now I have a computer, let me try to rewrite this mm -hmm. the way I remember it, but also add my little touches. It's just really interesting how games grew back then and the same thing is still happening you know you look at a game like oh geez breath of the wild and there's that that free-to-play mmo i can't even think of what it's called people call genshin it impact genshin impact aka wow, good Souls. job Nadia. yeah <laughs> like that's like there are clear influences there yeah right? it's like breath of the wild the way someone saw it but with their own spin on it and yeah it's just yeah. you know the more things change the more they stay the same no absolutely sort of that's definitely uh the creative process just kind of uh seeing what you see and not necessarily aping it, but making your own take on it and presenting it for the world. And someone else says, oh, this this looks really cool. Now I'm inspired and so on down the line. Exactly. I thought it was interesting that this was kind of the early, early, early days of gaming and how you could already see the divide in culture because Pong obviously came out around this time. And it was kind of a sports game, competitive game that you would play with your friends. Some high score games started to come out around this time. And that was the beginnings of the culture that would influence our video game, like console games primarily, right? I mean, the Famicom, which would of course come around after the Atari, was based around, was made by a toy maker in Nintendo. Whereas if you look at Play-Doh, or you look at the earliest, earliest home PCs, they were the purview of tabletop role players. All of the RPG nerds were playing on those systems. It's it's funny. There was a, there was an interview, I think, that has long since been lost to... Uh, you could probably jump in the Wayback Machine and find it, but um, Sierra co-founder queen of adventure gaming roberta williams was once kind of excoriated by a lot of critics because she said you know computer games used to be the purview of the rich and it kind of came off snobby and she later clarified she said that's not how i meant it but you have to understand that in the 70s and 80s if you bought a personal computer you you didn't just dig through the couch 
for a spare change, you had to have a few thousand dollars, especially, especially Apple II. And well, that was the case her, in the 90s, for heaven's sake. Oh, yeah. Oh, it absolutely. It really was. I remember looking at the price of a Penny M2. I'm like, I guess I could get a job. <laughs> That's three grand. That's, <laughs> That's why yeah. I had Commodore for a yeah. while. <laughs> and and it, it's just, I mean, you're right, though. Like, you think about where was Pong tested at a watering hole? Where was Rogue played in really clean, pristine universities and laboratories? It was just a completely different world, two different worlds. Well, David, a lot of people say that like the Temple of Apshai, maybe a Calabeth, or maybe the first PC RPG as we know it. But you kind of go even further back. Tell me a little bit about the lost first RPG. Yeah, so this is something I um, I didn't write about in in Dungeon Hacks, that first came out in 2015. And um, I just learned about this more recently on the CRPG Attic. There's a, a game called M199H. It's a very catchy thematic title. Yeah, that sounds like a band, like a, uh, it, it a, a Eurobeats band. Come see M199H opening <laughs> for Nine Inch Nails tomorrow oh, exclusively. I, I love their song, Midnight City. Oh, that's oh, it's just a classic. You know, they went platinum, M199H. Yeah. But... <laughs> So this name came from something we were talking about earlier. Um, they couldn't give it something like really cool and catchy because it had to be, it had to look like an application on this mainframe. So right. this is just the name of the file. In fact, others, uh, I can't remember what dungeon was called, but I think it's called something like P edit four or five because it was written in a, in a, um, in a language lab that began with P. So, you know, you had a syntax that you followed just to make it kind of blend in. But this was, it was a, a dungeon crawling game where you just, you made a character, very simple, very rudimentary. You went through a maze, you fought monsters and you got loot. And the reason this kind of got um, swept under the rug is because, again, when you're talking about mainframes, you're talking about who had access to them, which distros of whatever operating system they happened to run uh, went further, spread further. And Dungeon was just a lot more prolific. But this game was a lot like Dungeon. But it's kind of like if you look at open world maps and you remember like GTA 3 and now it's just like one pixel on the size of the huge maps that we have in open worlds today. It was kind of like that. Dungeon was a lot like M199H, but just a lot bigger. But it also shows almost like convergent biology where these people are in different places and they're they have the same influences and they're making the same thing. They're just calling it something different and implementing it slightly differently. Again, depending on the computer language they have access to. Um, but this, this is really how uh, computer RPGs started. You know, no one had the graphics to create really elaborate campaigns. So it was D and D boiled down to its nuts and bolts, which was grab a weapon, smash that skeleton and pick up whatever it dropped. And, um, that was something that was engrossing at the time because no one had seen anything like it. And the cool thing was, you know, there, there were no pre-release campaigns. You would just kind of be poking around your mainframe, seeing what files you were. You'd run this file called M199H and suddenly suddenly <laughs> you were making a character and going off on an adventure. And also unlike Dungeon and in D&D, this was single player. So there was no way to meet up with other player it was almost mythological. You'd have to tell your friends like, hey, I played this computer game, which was an alien thing. And, oh, you can make characters and you can, you know, I fought this troll. And it kind of it spread almost by, by word of mouth. You know, you just had to tell your friends, hey, go dig here, run this file. 
um, make sure to, I don't know what the equivalent of alt tab was back then, but that's what you did. Yeah. When, when a professor when, comes when, around. Yeah. Or, you know, when, because each, each lab had an admin who could actually see how the, the time sharing resources were being divvied out. And so you had to be kind of, kind of cautious about, it. and even if you didn't have that type of granular data and things started slowing down, the admins kind of make the rounds like, okay, who's, who's doing what here? Who's signed in? <laughs> um, yeah. But it was, it was just really interesting how, how this game kind of started and, and uh, the genre, which it wasn't really formally known as yet, just started from there. One thing that kind of interests me that I noticed when I was researching is that it's, it's not really the hardware that made games, uh, made RPGs more powerful, quote unquote. It's more like the CRT refresh rates improved <laughs> and therefore they could put like more text on the screen and, and even like primitive graphics. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, and if you had Plato, Plato was um, kind of one of the cream of the crops of, of mainframes because it actually had uh, graphics. If you were using other types of terminals, again, you are on a terminal. Um, you, you were a terminal connected to a mainframe. You didn't know where the mainframe was and really didn't matter. You just knew that you could talk to it. And you, you were, it was almost like a jumbo typewriter. You would type something in and then the output would appear on the roll of paper in front of you. So there often wasn't a screen in some cases, it was just text space. Um, and yeah, these are just really fascinating times. The idea of just having, of just reserving computer time and only getting <laughs> X number of cycles is just completely wild to me. I, yeah. Earlier this year, I was reading Hunt for Red October because again, I'm like in my 40s, apparently, or my 50s, <laughs> apparently, secretly. <laughs> and there's a lot of talk in that book about it's like, oh, we need to reserve the old computer so that I can do these calculations <laughs> and things like that. And it's just like, oh my god, and that was in the <laughs> mid '80s. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, and the, they were still in use. Like you know, PCs didn't really they weren't spreading until around that time. I think that a lot of people think of of uh, the Holy Trinity in 1997. You had Commodore PET, the TRS-80, and the Apple II. But for businesses, uh, it was, you know, IBM in, in around the mid to late 80s where you know, computers and businesses really started to become not ubiquitous, but just a few steps away. And yeah. yet, even though these computers were so primitive, the first thing that we wanted to do was like, let's put a video game on it. Almost a second computers appear, and you're like, <laughs> but how can we play a game on this thing? How yeah. can we play with it? But it's not even just a video game. It's like, how can we put a Tolkien thing on this? How can we nerd out with this thing? Yeah, and the cool thing is a lot of those early hackers didn't get the credit they deserve because even, even by this time, the concept of like programming a spreadsheet or a word processor, I won't go so far as to say those were solved problems, but the, the concept is, is pretty straightforward. Uh, writing games forced people to get really creative, to, to kind of stretch their knowledge of programming, to really collaborate, share knowledge. And that's something that games have always done. I mean, if you, if you want to give, like, you know, kids now in school, they're starting to program at, you know, the age of kindergarten, first grade. Mm -hmm. They're not like, the teachers aren't saying, go home and create the next word. Like, hey, let's make little games because games are a cool way to show what you've learned 
to put right. something into effect and to know that you're going to build something fun out of it. Just the same as you, as you were with the, uh, the toy blocks or in, in Kat's case, the Warhammer, the, uh, Warhammer <laughs> figures that she had. Um, but you know, it, it's just a different way to kind of like experiment and have fun building things and seeing how it works. Do you have any idea, uh, how the situation was in Japanese universities at the say at this time, of course, it wasn't networked the way uh, the world is now, but I'm just thinking like, of course, a lot of Japanese developers, we hear about how they're, we are inspired by wizardry, by Ultima, but those are the more advanced graphics based RPGs. And I was wondering if you know anything about maybe they were into the same sort of text based RPGs that the, the Western world was, or if it came by a little later. I, I don't know, and I'm really glad you brought that up because now I want to find out. The I think in a lot of ways, like there's always been a lot of mystique around how Japanese developers build games. I think primarily because, you know, in the 80s, they were so secretive that companies like Konami and Capcom would go so far as to create fictitious names for their developers in the credits yes. because they didn't want other companies poaching their talent. And that also backfired on the talent, right? Because then you can't go to your resume and portfolio and say, well, I built this. you got to have to of take course. a word for it. Um, but, you know, computer games for a long time were slow to catch on there because computers weren't ubiquitous. Uh, you would go to an internet cafe to use a computer, but it wasn't like the Famicom or later the PlayStation where, like, you and all your friends had one. It was kind of... Of beautiful. course. So I'm, I'm really actually interested in, in that progression. I know that there were a lot of... There, there was a Japanese PC market, like Metal Gear came to the MX, the MSX. The, yeah, MSX, that, yeah, exactly. So like, I know about that era and forward, but exactly, I'm, it's really interesting to go back. I would really like to know more about that. One of the reasons I also bring it up is because thinking of uh, Iwata, RIP, he was apparently an unusual person, well, for many reasons, but he programmed in basic. And apparently that was something that did not happen in Japan at that time. And the Famicom, for some reason, was was based on BASIC. So there's just a really, uh, as you said, a really deep unknown history of Japanese development in the very early very early years that if you ever get to the bottom of it and decide to write another book on it, I'm, I'm game. <laughs> yeah, I, I would love to. Now I was <laughs> thinking about it, honestly. So yeah. I, I read, um, I don't know if either of you picked up the book on Iwata that came out, I think, back in April. We have it, but I haven't read it yet, but I hear it's fantastic. It's, it's, it's fantastic. And he actually, there are some like journal type entries, but all the work he did on these games, he talks about PCs, nothing beforehand. Mm -hmm. And that's because, you know, even even here in the West, uh, we got to an age where our first exposure, I mean, the, I think the first PC I used was an Apple II. I never used the mainframe. Yeah, me too. Now, him using BASIC is interesting. I don't remember if the book said that because I know here, BASIC was like training wheels. Then you pop those off and you wrote an assembly. Um that's yeah. No, okay. Now I'm going to go down a rabbit hole. No, no, I'm, 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 yeah. 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 But no, it's, it's really fascinating. I would like to explore that more. Well, the through line was always Ultima wizardry. And there was a clutch of Japanese developers that included Sakaguchi and Yuji Horii who were really into those games. And they ultimately wanted to make their own versions of them, which they did. And they were called Dragon Quest and Final Fantasy. And, <laughs> But before that, they weren't particularly popular, as evidenced by, if you go back and read Game Over, Hank Rogers, when he was having a lot of dealings with Nintendo in the early days, he was bringing RPGs over and being like, no, oh, check out this genre. It's pretty rad. And people are like, what? What is this thing? <laughs> I do not know what this thing is. So 
He's like a saint, the first saint who got flayed for RPGs or something. It's it's so true. I remember my, I think the first time I played Dragon Warrior in the States was uh, a friend of mine had a Nintendo Power subscription and he got the game through his subscription, which I thought was really cool. Like, hey, how do you you get this game spread around? Like, oh, just give it away with this magazine. Kids will play it because, you know, you didn't have a lot of games to choose from back then. Mm -hmm. Very smart move. Yeah, it really was. I thought it was really cool, but also very esoteric. I didn't get a lot of how it functioned. I I know that you could like wander into areas you definitely should not go immediately after leaving the castle. But there was also like it just my eyes would get wider and wider as Jeff and I played. Like, what is this? What is this game? And why are slimes so different color? Yeah. I like that we set out to talk about 1970s uh, RPGs, and we <laughs> yeah. ended up talking about Dragon Quest, of course. That's the, that's the natural order that's of things, That's the way Scott. of it, this it, podcast. This it was. It was, because like if you think about it, the games, the games that we played in the 70s, like, like Dungeon and D&D, were probably similar. They just didn't have... Uh, they either had text-based graphics or very rudimentary characters. And he, they played on the keyboards or terminals instead of two-button controllers. Like that's that's actually one part of I think CRPGs that has always kind of uh, distinguished them from RPGs. Um, console RPGs were certainly more accessible, whereas even back on the mainframes, games like Rogue, it used every key on the keyboard and sometimes com- combinations of keys like you you could starve in rogue you had to know how to eat you had to know when you got exhausted there was a special key combination to to sleep it was also almost like typing in cheat codes like what's the combination <laughs> to to sleep or to eat a turkey leg or whatever it was yeah and uh, i guess back then you would even have like your network of uh not necessarily cheaters but discussion like between people how do you do this how do you do that like your secret networks going on yeah. And I think also it was also tradition. Like, I, I don't know about you, too. I learned a lot about computers from from playing games, um, especially in DOS. Like if I didn't have enough, if I couldn't get my CD-ROM working, I, I started reading books about, OK, how do I make a boot disk and how do I disable this hardware or give more memory to this? And um, the same thing happened with these mainframe RPGs where you had save scumming. If there's a game with with permadeath, you had to learn how to like dig around in the directories, get your files. So that's one thing I think the administrators during this era didn't understand was that playing games could be educational too. You were learning a lot about the technology because maybe you found a really good sword and didn't want to lose it. Like that was the impetus to go in and learn more about how Unix or the Plato uh, terminal or whatever you were using worked. But at the same time, by 1977, we had the Apple II. So we were starting to get personal computers and some of the games that were coming out on them included Beneath Apple Manor, which was one of the first RPGs that you cited in your book. Yeah, I remember I started with that one because uh, the the genre, the roguelike subgenre could have really been the BAM genre because Beneath Apple Manor had pardon me, all the trappings of, of Rogue, but it was about, I think, two or three years ahead of it. And um, that's when you started seeing um, Forks in computer game development. Uh, there were a couple a couple guys, um, well, three guys, Michael Toy, um, Glenn Wickman, and Ken Arnold, who, who worked on Rogue. And when Michael Toy moved away, uh, Rogue forked, and everyone was working on their own version of it. Mm-hmm. And then as, as people started to pick up computers, you know, BAM was, it was called Beneath Apple Manor, Donworth said, just because so I didn't really have any ideas for like, a setting so i just created this old manor and i was writing it on apple too so i just called it apple it's a manor. great name i love it it, it is a, it is a <laughs> great name 
Um, but it just it didn't catch on as much for two reasons. First of all, even though the Apple II had been out for a year or two at that point, it was expensive. You have to remember that the Apple II really didn't start to spread like wildfire until Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak worked out a way to get it into schools. That's yes. when it really that's took when off. I, that's how I first accessed the Apple II. Exactly. My grandma was a reading center teacher, and she would bring her Apple II home for the summer, which Ooh. to me meant computer games. All that's day really day. awesome. Yeah, it was, it was great. Um, and the other reason was... It was a commercial product. You had to not only have the computer to play beneath Apple Manor, but you needed to find a store that, that sold it. Right. And come up with the cat. I think it was like thirty or forty dollars, which for a computer game was That's a lot. It was a time. lot back then. Yeah. Um, Rogue, as long as you had a mainframe and uh, if you were running Unix past a certain point, it was part of the distro. Uh you could just play it for free. Yeah, I mean a lot of kids, uh university kids would invite their friends onto campus, like, hey, let's go to the computer lab. I know one that's open at this hour. We'll just go play Rogue all night. Um, <laughs> nice. And it was it was uh, it was a really just fun experience, tantamount to instead of gathering around a table with dice and sheets of paper, you were just on dumb terminals, kind of shouting back and forth, like, "Hey, here's what I found, or here's what my level generated," because you were getting different experiences too. The mazes were random, so it, it must have cool. ruined. Like, even though yes, games are extremely educational, and there's a lot of benefits <laughs> to learn them, it must have ruined a lot of grades back in the day as well. It really did. Um, <laughs> Get high on cough syrup and play Rogue. So, true story. And I won't reveal it here because I'm a man of my word. But Dave Brevik said, you can tell the story about me getting hooked on roguelikes. But if my parents read Stay Well and Listen, you cannot tell them my GPA because it was worse than even they knew. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. But I was like, okay. But yeah, if if not for Dave's utter addiction to, uh, I believe it was Moria. Uh, because yeah, there was the demon at the bottom of the dungeon, which became of Diablo. course. Um, yeah, we wouldn't have Diablo, so it's just all these these influences through different generations of hardware. It's stunning to me to look at screenshots of these old RPGs and to think about how primitive they are, especially in the late seventies. Because you, the way they're described, are like described as dungeon crawlers, and the first thing that comes into mind is like wizardry. But then yes. you look at the screenshots; it's just kind of a lot of random shapes on the screen along with some text yeah like you're really your imagination had to be the gpu that that powered this stuff i mean <laughs> that's such a teacher thing to say imagination. Make your imagination yeah that's right my video card never goes out of date um, <laughs> never goes on ebay for a billion dollars that's right that's right it, it's the you had to plot these things so meticulously unless you that was that was a reason why a lot of these early mainframe crpgs use procedural generation because it was either that or make bespoke levels by plotting characters in memory blocks that that was super tedious it also made the game um not much fun to replay because you beat level one you know what it is why play it again um but i remember talking to to richard garrett for another book where he said yeah you know i had to get into since the, you know, the apple II could display color i really wanted to show you know, rivers and oceans and mountains and forests. And it was like, he, he even let me include a photo. He found like graph paper. He was charting all this stuff out nice. in memory. And that was really how a lot of these mainframe RPGs work too. But, you know, just again, different because there was no color to worry about unless you were on Plato in which things were, uh, it was almost like the virtual boy instead of red and black Plato was orange and black. <laughs> um, but it was still just really rudimentary. Your mind kind of fills in the gaps. Sort yeah. Of thing. I was actually looking at um, Temple of Apshai 
again. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really realize how primitive, like even though it is the first graphical RPG as far as we know or, or around there, very, very, very primitive. The version I played on Commodore, I thought that was a joke. And <laughs> no, it used to be a lot simpler. Like we're talking about like characters, like a cross means an enemy and a, a line means a treasure chest. Yeah, I, I you know that that's kind of the start of the era where you started to get into um, these little feuds would start up. There were wizardry fans and then there were <laughs> ultimate fanboys. Fans. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. And like they both had things going for them. Like wizardry used a lot of line based graphics and it was a kind of a first person game, yeah. which was neat. But then Ultima, even though the graphics stayed more or less the same over the especially the first three games, it started to go more into interesting stories and ideas like morality. And so that's really when dungeon crawls started to become more than just hit the thing, pick up the other thing. Uh, you know, we were starting to see more story come into play as, as technology improved. But back on the mainframes, it was just, let's go down to the dungeon and see how long we can stay alive and see how much treasure we can get. It was almost like the equivalent of a high score table in arcade. Like how much treasure right. can you amass before you invariably die? And was it D&D? That was D&D. <laughs> that was that the game that had the first boss technically like the golden dragon guarding the orb or was that another was that another game in the same time frame i think that's right because like even rogue which was a little a few years later it didn't really have bosses you just had unique monsters that you could ignore right. if you wanted to keep going um I, but i believe you're right i believe that was the the idea of a of a boss which was a cool way to build up anticipation when you replayed you knew that you were eventually going to get close to this Maybe not the big bad, but a yeah. big bad um, and kind of gearing up for an encounter. That was that was part of the fun. Right. And that became so integral to RPGs from there on, practically. Yeah. Yeah. I also love how I, I love uh, as genres goes on, developers tr- find a way to kind of flip scripts and almost troll you with tropes. Trolling with tropes. There's a, there's a, <laughs> a literative book title where. Yeah, in games like Final Fantasy, you work the whole game to build up your your summons, and then you have to fight them. It's the end. Like, oh, I'm being punished for the, yeah. the work I put in here. But back then, we weren't thinking of anything like that, which I think was a good thing. It was all about like optimization, almost the first type of min-maxing. Like, how, how can I get to be as good as I could possibly be before I get to this boss so I can kill it and see what's after it? So many of these RPGs were basically just straight dumps of D&D first edition or second edition, <laughs> but into an interactive framework so that you can play without your friends. Cause who wants to go to a party anyway? Not me. Well, that, that's the other thing too. Like D and D I think I mentioned on a previous episode, but if not, um, I, I never got to play it because none of my friends were into it. They were into magic for like a couple of years. We all had decks, but D and I bought the AD and D kit and no one would play. So CRPGs really for me was like, let's let the computer be the dungeon master. And I want to experience this adventure. Um, Having a game you could play by yourself was a godsend for anyone who was super into this stuff, but either couldn't find the time or the the friends outside the computer lab to to partake. Well, the seventies were kind of a big bang for video games in general, whether in the arcade or in the PC. First, there was basically nothing in the early 70s, and then explosion, maybe a let there be light kind of moment. And then by the late 1970s, we were, I mean, the ecosystem was flourishing. We had games like Acalabeth. We were heading into what would we would start to know as the modern RPG era starting in the 1980s. It's fascinating to look at the 
kind of progression from nothing to a flourishing ecosystem, as it were. Do you two have any final thoughts in the earliest days of PC RPGs? Oh, Nadia, I'll let you go first. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, <laughs> like I said, it's been a bit of a fascinating thing for me. I know that it's I've only scratched the surface um, of CRPG history, but I think it's not just interesting from a technical standpoint, but from a social standpoint and just seeing how we have always come together to make games to waste time, but usually like for the benefit of ourselves and for our own kind of uh, skill set. And again, we talked about certain things like the how people would share tips back and forth, even that yell them across the room. Just uh, there's always been that kind of undertone to gaming that still exists today. And I find that it's fascinating. It's existed for such a long time, like from the very, very beginning, basically. I think what what fascinates me is that games were so new that if you weren't closed-minded toward them, you could see how they were great showpiece programs for what computers were capable of, which was such uncharted terrain back then. I mean, I know that um, Doug Carlson told me that when, um, when Broderbund started, he was going store to store selling discs and to do it while, while the clerk was with another customer. He'd go around insert the game discs into any computers on the show floor and just have them run. And uh, the clerks kind of noticed like, what's this guy doing? But then people would come over and start asking about the computers. They wanted to know what they were seeing. They wanted to know more about how they were seeing what they were seeing. And I think about that. That's still, that's still something that computers and new consoles are good for today. Like when the PS five launched, I I wanted to get demon souls and, and miles Morales right away because those were what the critics said. Like, Hey, if you get a new console, this is really going to, going to let you flex its muscle and this is these are the games to show off to your friends and computers have always have always been that and it's kind of cool that like you said Nadia I think you put it perfectly it was the social aspect that has really always been there but also just the way to I feel like if not for computer games a lot of the the forebears of this industry might not have gotten started because they were never nothing ever caught their eye and made them wonder what could I do with a computer? yeah what if absolutely. I made something like this and but kind of plus one did a little bit. So it's just really, and there's so much mystique around that period too, because so much of it is still undocumented. And um, I am still learning a lot about it myself, even having written a lot about it. It's, it's just such a fascinating era to me. Absolutely. Oh, keep it up and keep digging up those, that cool stuff. I will. Talking about the eye catches on the show floor just makes me th- imagine grandpa walking up to a PC and going, the pictures are coming <laughs> to life. <laughs> the pictures. Yeah, I remember even talking to, uh, I think it was Ed Freeze at Microsoft. He, or no, it was, um, oh shoot, who's the, Howard Phillips. Howard, oh, yes, Howard Phillips. I always confuse him with Howard Lincoln. I was yes, talking to Howard Phillips. He said when his dad brought home, I don't think it was an Atari, but it was one of the dedicated Pong consoles. The whole family gathered around and like, how are the wait, we're making the pictures on the TV yeah. move? What is this sorcery? This and magic. Just, back then it was like, yeah, you you watched screens. You did not interact with them. Mm-hmm. And it just must have been a, kind of amazing to be to be part of that back then. Kind of breaking I, down a wall. Yeah. I mean, I felt the same. I think the first Apple II game I played was Lemonade Stand, and I did it in a programming class. My mom signed me up for a summer programming course, and after we finished our program, we were allowed to play lemonade stand and I, I got to thinking like wow how does it 
how does it change the weather and how my prices, why won't people pay $100 for a glass of my lemonade? It's great, I promise. That's great, <laughs> it just, I didn't be in it at all. You just, no, not at all, not at all. Uh, and it's just, I don't know, even through that, this is long-winded and I apologize, but you get to thinking about, gee, like what is inflation and how does the economy work? And of games course. are what get kids thinking about that stuff, not reading textbooks, it's games. They come across these problems, they want to know how to solve them in the context of a game. It's just, I'm glad that we're finally in an age where even though not everyone has come around to games, so many more people have that, you know, now teachers are like, yeah, make a little game. That's your homework. That's pretty yeah, cool. Like it's recognized now, at least as a legit teaching tool. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I feel like there's a lot more that we could talk about for this particular era, but maybe we will use that as a jumping off point into the 1980s next time on the PCRPG quest. But for now, that is the end of our episode. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoy the podcast, do us a favor, go leave us a review on the podcatcher of your choice. And of course, subscribe to us on Patreon at patreon.com slash bloodgodpod, where you get access to all of our wonderful premium content. And follow me on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. And David, where can we find you? Uh, at David L. Craddock on Twitter. And where else can we find you? Uh, DavidLCraddock.com. Um, oh, but, you know, apropos of this conversation, a new edition of Dungeon Hacks was Ooh, released uh, this week, uh, Wednesday, August 11th. So it should be in bookstores and on Amazon now. It's in hardcover for the first time. So go check that out. It's a tremendous read. Very much worth reading if you find this particular period uh, really interesting because it really opens a window into the very, very, very earliest days of gaming. So you should definitely check it out. But in the meantime, for Nadia, David, and myself, thanks for listening. Happy adventuring. Is it pronounced exilia or zilia? I think it's zilia. I can't freaking know. <laughs>